Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Washington University Emergency Medicine Journal Club podcast, June 2017. Now, this month, things are going to be a little bit different. This is actually going to be a topic we did back in January of this year. At that time, we had Dr. Marco Civilotti come down from Queen's University in Canada to help out with a journal club on the diagnostic approach to atraumatic subarachnoid hemorrhage. It was a great journal club. Unfortunately, we didn't have a chance to record the podcast at that time. Since then, Dr. Chris Carpenter has recorded a discussion with Dr. Civilotti on this topic, and I'm going to let Dr. Carpenter take it from here. Welcome to the Washington University Journal Club podcast for January 2017. I'm pleased today to welcome Marco Civilotti on the line, and he is a professor of emergency medicine at Queen's University in Kingston, Ontario. He's a full-time toxicologist with a lot of interest in a lot of other areas as well, and Really one of the smartest people I know, so really it's a pleasure to have you on today, Marco. Uh, thanks, Chris, but uh, this is the January podcast, and aren't we in July right now? Uh, back off, eh? Don't, don't be a hoser. Okay, so this is what happens when I procrastinate. Uh, the Journal Club topic was the diagnostic approach to subarachnoid hemorrhage, essentially the role for post-CT lumbar puncture. The January Journal Club was really special for us because we had Marco uh, take the time to come down and join us for the Journal Club. In addition, we had about 10 of our neurosurgery colleagues at the Journal Club. Marco, what did you think about our WashU Journal Club format? Um, yeah, well, I wanted to, first of all, thank you for your excellent hospitality. And uh, St. Louis, as we pronounce it, is a, such a vibrant and historic city. Um, but I really enjoyed the uh, single-topic format and the chance to deep dive into uh, subarachnoid hemorrhage for Journal Club. And it was great to have the interdisciplinary input from the neurosurgeons. We often just focus on you know, handing off the patient and then letting them deal with some of the diagnostic uncertainty. But they gave a real good perspective on what happens after we make the diagnosis. Yeah, I think for a knowledge translation, it's really important to have those other perspectives because we don't operate in a vacuum in the ED. We are one part of a team. Um, and believe it or not, our neurosurgeons are still talking about that journal club. I was talking yesterday with them in trauma about that, the way we do it and the very topic of subarachnoid hemorrhage. So it does have a lasting impact when you take the time to really pull them into the discussion. Um, our, actual, our actual vignette was a 30-year-old female presenting to the ED within two hours of onset of the worst headache of her life. It peaked within a minute of onset, and she had no significant past medical history. Yeah, that's right. So she had you know, no prior history of migraines, but also no history of CNS infections, strokes, HIV, sickle cell disease, or uh, you know, IV drug use, or anything else. Yeah, and her physical exam was unremarkable. So you're concerned about subarachnoid hemorrhage and proceed to a non-contrast CT, which I think is appropriate in this case. While awaiting the CT, I always like to think two or three steps ahead. What am I going to do with the result one way or another? And you contemplate whether a lumbar puncture is necessary to fully exclude subarachnoid hemorrhage if the CT comes back unremarkable and non-diagnostic. Marco, how do you approach these patients and the traditional teaching of a post-CTLP? Well, you know, I was certainly taught that this was a can't-miss diagnosis, and the LP was mandatory after a negative CT. And uh, we were even persuaded uh, to consider skipping the CT altogether at times, since you were going to do the LP anyways. Um, but 
you know, we did lots of LPs and, um, you know, we pretty much did them unless we could convince the patient to, uh, to refuse the test. But we also struggled with the traumatic taps, uh, the post-LP headaches, mm -hmm. uh, and that residual diagnostic uncertainty. And you know, over the years, you start to realize that you need to recalibrate your practice. Um, you start wondering, you know, what is the utility, and are you harming uh, more patients than benefits? And you wonder, really, does the emperor uh, have any clothes at all? It's what makes your, our job exciting, right? Is that this isn't a static practice. We're continually learning, and will be for the rest of our lives. Uh, that, to me, that's what makes it exciting. Um, in our journal club, we actually evaluated four emergency medicine manuscripts that explored this very question. The first year manuscript was a meta-analysis of studies evaluating the diagnostic accuracy of CT performed within six hours of headache onset for the diagnosis of subarachnoid hemorrhage. Yeah, so you know those authors found uh, five studies, but uh, only three of them recorded the two-by-two two tables needed to uh, combine them. And um, from these three studies, the pool sensitivity was nearly 99%, and the specificity is nearly 100%. So that comes out to a negative likelihood ratio of 0.01, or about a two-order in magnitude reduction uh, in your odds. Um, one of the things I really liked in this manuscript was a table that laid out these uh, factors associated with a so-called false negative CT. And they listed patient factors, uh, imaging issues, and communication. Yeah, I think for listeners, that table is well worth reviewing. And, and we did include it with the uh, PGY1 answer key and the bottom line for our journal club, which you can find online on our website. The patient factors included things like timing of the CT relative to the headache onset. Are you really sure that that headache was within six hours? And we've got to be clear with the patient about that. It's not su such a thing that six hours is magical, but make sure the headache wasn't like six weeks ago. Um, and, and while imaging issues include things like absence of motion artifact, slice thickness, and how experienced your radiologist is reading the CT scans. Um, a, a resident read is probably a bit different than a very experienced neuroradiologist. And something that I often didn't think about before I read some of your work, Marco, was the patient hematocrit. Yeah, that, that's what shows the blood on the CT. Um, the, um, you know, the communication factors, though, included the clinician speaking with the radiologist and indicating that the reason for the CT was to look for subarachnoid and pay attention to some of those subtle findings. And also, of course, the physician communicating with the patient that after a negative CT, there's still a residual risk for subarachnoid. It's never zero, but it's maybe more like one in a thousand. And that's because no test is ever perfect. Yeah, and that's some of the philosophical discussion we're going to have in just a couple of minutes, is, is how close to zero do you have to get? Um, so moving on to the second year paper then, um, the, the false negative issue. It's a lingering concern for many emergency physicians and a, a probably a source of consternation about the don't LP approach to patient care. Yeah, absolutely. So this manuscript tried to quantify this issue of a falsely negative CT based on the final radiology report. And it used a retrospective review of the Kaiser Permanente uh, Northern California patients who had a coding for non-traumatic subarachnoid over a six-year period. And the investigators asked two neuroradiologists to review a mix of headache patient CTs and to interpret them as definite CT evidence of subarachnoid, probable CT evidence, or no CT evidence of subarachnoid. Yeah. So, you know, in a previous work, uh, these authors had identified a small number of falsely, falsely negative CTs uh, in this large retrospective data set. And we had calculated that these misses might represent something like once in a thousand year of practice events. But when you look at thousands of providers over a decade or so, you do observe such uh, rare events. 
Um, unfortunately, in this study, they don't really give us a lot of information about the CT quality and, and the number of slices and so on, although we assume that this is a relatively you know, modern uh, practice. Mm -hmm. And they don't tell us a lot about the the radiologist that's interpreting the CT initially, they used neuroradiologists to overread it, but the initial read was done by the general radiologist. And also the design. This is a case control study in which the authors randomly decide the ratio of subarachnoid cases to control headache patients. So you cannot really report specificity or likelihood ratios because they've artificially de uh, designed how many, how many disease negative cases they're going to have. Yeah, and you know the case control uh, structure tells you you're looking at something that's pretty rare, and right. that's the appropriate design for that. But they don't report this, but they do tell us that uh, um, 18 of almost 500 aneurysmal subarachnoids had had this initial CT interpretation that was negative, and uh, seven of these 18 had been imaged within six hours of the headache onset as ascertained from retrospective medical review of the, of the chart. That's interesting, but it's only hypothesis generating because of the study design, case control, the lack of descriptors for the chart review methods, which are really important because this is a, um, at, at the very best, a marginal way to study a process. Chart review methods, you've got to use good chart review methods. And then inadequate details about how many patients with negative CT actually had an LP or other post-CT workup like a CT angio. Furthermore, it's hard for me to believe that CTs really miss 4% of aneurysmal subarachnoid hemorrhage cases because many EPs are not obtaining post-CTLP on every suspicious headache after a negative CT, and we really don't have thousands of patients suffering catastrophic subarachnoid hemorrhages following a negative CT every year. Yeah, that's right. But of, of course, you know, we do have some, and, and mm -hmm. these catastrophic ruptures following an eMERGE visit for headache certainly do occur, but um, we understand them better now as being the uncommon outlier, not the norm. And whenever you base medical decisions for all patients on these rare outliers, you're wasting scant medical resources, and you're actually doing measurable harm to far more patients uh, who obviously have no benefit to gain. And at some point in medicine, we have to you know, consider that less can be more. Yeah, that's really important. This research too often thinks about the benefits without contemplating the harms. And, and that's what we're, we're really saying is, let's think about both sides of the equation here. Um, so moving on to the third year paper, um, this is actually one that Marco is a senior author on, and I was an author as well. And we um, put together this paper with some other very bright diagnosticians, Adnan Hussan, who just finished his residency at Northwestern, Mike Ward at Vanderbilt, and Jesse Pines at George Washington. Yeah, and you also invited one of your neurosurgery colleagues to help uh, co-author the study. Yeah, Greg Zippel. He's our residency director, and he helped us to understand these diagnostic issues from the surgeon's perspective. And he's really the reason why we had a dozen neurosurgery faculty and residents at that journal club. Yeah, and of course, this manuscript is part of the superb uh, academic emergency medicine series of evidence-based diagnostics. Yeah, and the intent of that series is really to provide one high-quality resource which ED providers can find a systematic review of all elements of history, physical exam, pertinent labs, and imaging for common ED diagnoses like scaphoid fracture, septic arthritis, and of course, subarachnoid. The series also uses these estimates to derive estimates of thresholds below which continued testing likely harms more, more patients than we help which is never 0%, and treatment thresholds, too, above which if we continue to tr test for the diagnosis to make, make our likelihood 100%, we're going to hurt, hurt more patients than we help. These meta-analyses are a lot of work to pull together. Yeah, I'm getting some appreciation for that. Didn't, didn't we start this project in 1960? <laughs> yeah, very funny. I, I think that we started it around 2012. 
uh, and submitted the manuscript in late 2015. So probably three years worth of work, but it does seem like 50. Yeah. And um, I know you work very closely with a medical librarian for these systematic reviews also. Yeah, absolutely. I got to throw kudos out to Susan Fowler. She's an evidence-based medicine librarian at, at our library. She's extraordinary. She's also taught the McMaster Evidence-Based Medicine course with me and is co-authored with me, I think, about a dozen systematic reviews already. She's phenomenal. Yeah, great. So uh, just to talk about the paper a bit, we're, you know, we found uh, on the meta-analysis that really no single item uh, on history or physical uh, substantially increase or decrease the probability of an aneurysmal headache. And uh, even worse, our ability to consistently obtain some of these factors on history are often questionable. And for example, the key historical feature of thunderclap headache has a fairly marginal kappa of about uh, 0 0.49. Yeah, so interp to interpret that another way, if two physicians independently ask patients to describe the quality of the headache as thunderclap, they often obtain different ideas of whether that is the descriptor of the headache or not. Yeah. So, you know, of course, we can't throw out the history and physical completely. Uh, and in fact, emergency physicians have insisted that a feature like thunderclap headache remain part of a decision rule. But we really need to be wary of their accuracy and their reliability and how to put them all together into some uh, decision instrument. And, um, you know, our, the Ottawa subarachnoid uh, decision rule uh, incorporates these multiple factors and it really tries to risk stratify uh, the patients. Um, the initial validation studies uh, led us to refine the rule. Uh, again, we tried to get really close to 100% sensitivity. And I'm happy to announce that we just had the uh, final validation study of the rule accepted for publication in the Canadian Medical Association Journal, CMAJ. Congrats. That's huge. Yeah, I neglected Thanks. to mention that Marco is part of the team that developed the Ottawa subarachnoid rule, so truly an expert in this area. Um, but like the PGY1 paper that we discussed earlier looking at CT diagnostic accuracy, our meta-analysis indicates that CT is adequate to rule out subarachnoid if obtained within six hours, negative likelihood ratio of 0.01. On the other hand, xanthochromia, visible xanthochromia, which is what 99% of North American hospitals use, has a likelihood ratio positive of 25 and a negative likelihood ratio of 0.22. Um, a lot of statistical heterogeneity there. And that negative likelihood ratio, we, the number we look for to rule out is 0.01 or less. I'm sorry, point one or less. So this is a bit um, less impressive to rule out. Yeah, and as the end users of these diagnostic tests, we really have to have a good feel for the information that's being conveyed by our test results when we interpret them. But, um, you know, one of the pieces I'm most proud of in this meta-analysis are the test treatment threshold analysis and the way we adapted this, uh, these curves that were originally proposed by Bernstein. And it really shows on a curve what the Fagan nomogram tries to show, but I think in a more intuitive way, and importantly allows the user to make their own assumptions around harm and benefit and uh, pretest probabilities and see what that does to their, their patients. And so those curves um, you know, are, really quite, are really the heart of this interpretation of what the information conveyed by a test when you're seeing someone post CT and trying to explain to them whether they'd benefit from an LP. And these analyses demonstrated that if visible xanthochromia is the CSF test being used to rule out subarachnoid hemorrhage and the post-CT probability of subarachnoid hemorrhage for an aneurysm is 2 to 7%, these patients might benefit from LP. But that's a pretty narrow range, 2 to 7%. It's a pretty, yeah, it's a pretty narrow range. And, and keep in mind that this is the probability after you've had the CT. Mm -hmm. uh, and in fact, most of the studies, and ours included, had a prevalence of subarachnoid in these patients who are awake and alert and neurologically intact 
the pre-CT probability is only about 7%. Mm -hmm. And clearly a CT is a very good test, gives lots of information that's shown in the curves. And so after you got a negative CT and a, likely, a negative likelihood ratio from that of 0.01 or 0.06, that takes you down substantially. And now to have a pre-test probability still in the 2 to 7% range is, is pretty implausible. So we have to always consider what this test has added to what we knew before we did the test. Yeah, that's, that's difficult to do because we get busy, we get distracted, we've got these reflexive responses built into us from our training and, and from the, the long-term um, care standard that's been applied to get that post-LP CT or at least to discuss that with patients as the, the, the standard. But, but the vast majority of ED headache patients in whom subarachnoid hemorrhage, who were not thinking about meningitis, we're not thinking about pseudotumor cerebri, but we're thinking subarachnoid hemorrhage is our primary concern. Most of them don't benefit from post-CTLP. Yeah, exactly. Now, of course, there are other reasons to do an LP, and we're not saying never LP, you know, an immunocompromised patient with a headache, for example. Mm -hmm. But the LP is more likely to harm than to help the awake alert patient in whom your only indication was to rule out subarachnoid. Yeah, for sure. There are risks of a lumbar puncture. You've got post-LP headaches. You've got epidural hematomas and iatrogenic infections. I remember a case just last year. Um, I, I can't remember what the indication for the LP was, but I do remember the patient was on Coumadin with an INR of five, and I walked into the room as the resident starting to stick the needle into the back. And, and I stopped. We stopped. For whatever the indication was, we waited. Um, but this is a discussion that we need to have with our patients, shared decision-making. One of our co-authors is actually developing an electronic medical record application so that we can give patients and providers their individualized benefit of lumbar puncture in terms of number needed LP to identify one aneurysmal subarachnoid that CT missed. Um, Marco, how do you respond to our colleagues in emergency medicine or neurosurgery with claims like, I don't care if the number needed LP is 7,000 or 70,000, I'm still going to do the LP to be absolutely certain? Yeah, of course. And, but, you know, in many ways, emergency medicine is defined by the skill to rule out immediately serious diagnoses. And anytime we do something to a patient just because of a protocol or to, or to protect ourselves, you know, we're, we're um, relinquishing our judgment and we're abdicating some of the privilege of being a physician. Um, and we risk being replaced by a robot, I think. Yeah, that's a very good point. I often say that if we're just going to push buttons and order a test and indiscriminately not worry about what the results are, my high school son could come in and work my shift. I'll just play games at home like he does. <laughs> so IBM but, is bringing Watson uh, to the <laughs> forefront right now. <laughs> uh, so listeners, I, I think legitimately, can argue about the pre precision of our test treatment calculations, um, although they appear fairly robust by our pre-planned and reported sensitivity analyses. Um, but we include an Excel file with the manuscript that can be downloaded from the Academic Emergency Medicine website, as do all the evidence-based diagnostic articles. And you can plug into that Excel uh, sheet alternative values for possible test harm, treatment benefits, or, or whatever other estimates you want to alter in that equation. But what would be really helpful is another author group independently confirming our test treatment threshold estimates. Yeah, so that's what this uh, next manuscript does. The PGY4 manuscript uses different search methods, different author group, and a different approach to estimating these same test thr thresholds that we've been talking about. Yeah, remember that uh, show from the 1960s, Gomer Pyle? I just have his voice in my head saying, surprise, surprise, surprise. These authors found nearly identical test thresholds as us. 
Yeah, I was also, uh, you know, spoon-fed on the 60s TV shows. So, um, but you know, remarkably, their point estimate for uh, a post-CT negative result doing the LP was 4.3% with confidence intervals that run from 1.5% to 9%. Surprisingly similar and very consistent with what we've been talking about. And again, it's important to remember that this is the residual risk following a negative CT. So your pretest would have to be much higher. Yeah, so that's reassuring. I think anytime you can reproduce results using different methods and, and seemingly a, a little bit different data, that's reassuring. To me, that means we're on the right track. So to wrap this up, Marco, you so eloquently wrote in our article that, quote, the diagnostic approach to acute headache epitomizes the practice of emergency medicine with a high-stakes condition without a clear-cut presentation lurking within a high-volume chief complaint, and ultimately, most patients do not have a serious diagnosis, end quote. So, Marco, where do we go from here? Well, I, I think it's an interesting time for this condition and for diagnostic testing in general. And there's the combination of evidence like this, uh, the choosing wisely movement, and patient involvement in the decisioning. And these are all going to be necessary to get us out of the, frankly, bit of a mess we've allowed ourselves to, to fall into. Yeah, I think there's much debate to be had still. Um, it, it's still ongoing after our article. Our neurosurgeons locally at WashU are convinced now that post-CTLP is rarely helpful. So we've made some progress with them. However, rather than discharging these patients, they're particularly intrigued now at the possibility of proceeding to post-CT non-contrast, uh, non-contrast initial CT with a CT angio. Um, it's that, dial that technological tenismus. We can't use our, what's between our ears. We've got to have a test that tells us what the right answer is. So like pulmonary embolism, this seems like a slippery slope to over-testing, over-diagnosis, and over-treatment to me. Uh, I would adv advocate personally rather than automatically now doing CTAs after every negative CT that we do a, a diagnostic RCT evaluating CT negative CTA versus uh, CT negative standard care um, before making this paradigm shift. I, I think this really needs to be tested before it becomes standard. Yeah, I agree wholeheartedly. You know, you know, it's tempting to replace a flawed test like the lumbar puncture with yet another test. But that other test includes radiation, uh, contrast exposure, incidental findings. And, you know, we really need to move to a time when we're scrutinizing all of the harms associated with testing, just like when we introduce a new drug or a new device into practice. Yeah, here, here. Um, well, Marco, I, I really appreciate your time and expertise that made this Journal Club a success. Any final thoughts? Um, I just wanted to thank you again, Chris, for uh, this collaboration and um, the, the patience and time needed to, to, I think, get it right. And I've enjoyed it immensely. Thank you. Well, thank you. And, and to the audience listening out there, if you've got ideas about this uh, subarachnoid hemorrhage diagnostic approach, let us know. Send us an email. And be sure to check out our website and listen to future issues of the Journal Club uh, podcast. Thank you.